In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Welcome to In Discussion. My guest today, Professor Dr. Paul Samarco, a professor at Louisiana University's Marine Consortium and scientist, Dr. Brian O'Leary. Dr. Paul Samarco, a professor at Louisiana University's Marine Consortium, released a technical report in 2005 with co-author Steve Colian, an environmental modeler for the USDA National Sedimentation Laboratory. The report explored the beneficial impacts that platform-supported offshore mariculture of food fish, ornamental fish, corals, and organisms valuable to the pharmaceutical industry could have on Louisiana's economy. The authors outlined how decommissioned offshore oil and gas platforms in the Gulf of Mexico could also be used for alternative energy production, recreational fishing and diving parks, natural gas storage and regasification, and also the maintenance of pipelines transporting deep water oil and gas. Thereafter, critics of using retired platforms for alternative purposes pointed to potential environmental hazards resulting from these operations. The report acknowledged these concerns and lists several actions that could alleviate or minimize their threat. As example of their work, Samarco and his colleague recommended the offshore culture of only native species derived from local stock to safeguard against non-native species and genetically engineered organisms escaping into the wild. Since the Deepwater Horizon disaster, Dr. Samarco has been concerned about marine life and also the protection of human beings following the widespread use of chemicals in combating the greatest environmental known disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. Dr. Brian O'Leary is a scientist philosopher with 50 years of experience in academic research, teaching and government service in frontier science and energy policy. He was a NASA scientist astronaut during the Apollo program, the first to be selected for a planned Mars mission, and participated in unmanned planetary missions as an Ivy League professor. Over the past four decades, O'Leary has been an international author, speaker, peace activist, founder of nonprofits, and advisor to progressive U.S. Congress members and presidential candidates. His latest book, The Energy Solution Revolution, describes the enormous potential of breakthrough clean energy technologies, their suppression, and logical necessity for our survival. Zero-point vacuum energy, cold fusion, and advanced hydrogen and water chemistry could provide us all an abundant future for all of humanity. In 2004, he and his wife, the artist Meredith Miller, moved to the Andes in Ecuador, where they co-created Montesuenas, an eco-retreat and educational center dedicated to creativity and the rights of nature. 
Dr. Paul Samarco and Dr. Brian O'Leary join me today on In Discussion. Welcome today to In Discussion and I am delighted to be introducing to the program Dr. Paul Samarco, Dr. Brian O'Leary and investigative journalist for In Discussion, Pat O'Brien. Welcome to you gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you very much for, uh, for having me. Good afternoon. And it's always good to be with you, David. Gentlemen, we would like to continue what is becoming a long-term series on the aftermath in the Gulf of Mexico. And of course, very kindly, Dr. Brian O'Leary continues with us on this very issue as he is very much involved in the same issues in the Andes. Uh, Dr. Paul Samarco, I wondered if you could give our audience a general overview of your work at the moment and in the past and also your concerns and involvement since the Deepwater Horizon disaster in 2010. Uh, surely. Uh, well, my, uh, for decades I have been working, I'm an ecologist and evolutionary biologist and I have been working in uh, the Western Pacific on the Great Barrier Reef and also in the Caribbean on coral reefs from a variety of different perspectives and, and many different aspects of the science, uh, sort of bridging ecology with uh, geology and uh, mathematics and geochemistry and so forth. Uh, uh, however, the way that I was uh, drawn into the, the spill issue was uh, for the past 10 or 12 years, uh, while being at, uh, in Louisiana here, I was asked to do a study by, actually, it was El Paso Energy, who were being proactive at the time. Uh, and they had asked, uh, goodness, what do we do if there is a spill in South Louisiana? What do we do uh, if we have a distillate spill and so forth, and, and uh, particularly with respect to the wetlands here, which are very sensitive, um, and they were critical to this region in terms of supporting the coastline, keeping, it, uh, at keeping erosion at bay, but also for the fisheries, which are, are critical to the income of the area. And so I, I mentioned to them that distillate was not enough. We'd have to look at crude as well, because the area, obviously, there's a lot of crude produced here and transported. Uh, so I produced a, uh, a review on this, which, uh, which was a bit of a challenge, but very, uh, very interesting. Uh, and then, of course, over the past year or so, we had this, uh, this spill which has created major problems here. And uh, I had taken a stand in my review, and I still hold true to this, that uh, there are remediation techniques which are available now, the technology is now available, to, uh, to, to treat the spill so that it can be handled in a way which is uh, non-toxic and uh, can be dealt with relatively quickly. These are bioremediation techniques. Uh, and then I found that... Uh, I started working with a number of companies that were very curious about my stand on this. So, so that's sort of, sort of how I got into it. We're clearly covering quite possibly one of the worst environmental disasters of modern times. And of course we are uncovering now great devastation, particularly to human health. What are the effects that you are seeing in your area now both in environmental terms 
and in terms of human health. It's probably best to start at the at the bottom and work one way one's way up. The first effects are water column, uh, and that is the the oil. Uh, under natural conditions, part of the oil goes into solution in seawater, uh, and that is that has its own effects because it affects productivity, it affects phytoplankton, and it affects zooplankton, which in turn affect things that eat that stuff, which eventually works its way up to through the food web to our commercial species. So that's one issue, and I have done some measurements on that, and I have some curious questions that I've raised regarding the data that I have versus the data that was released by uh, a federal agency back in, you know, while while the spill was still running, because we were getting some numbers that did not jive very well. Uh, So there's there's a water quality issue. Uh, There's also the problem of the, the oil on top of the water, if, if it's on top of the water, there's a, a volatility aspect. And a lot of the very light molecules are lost quickly, within a couple of days, actually. And those, from what I understand, those are the most valuable aspects of the oil, if you own the oil, that is. Then after that, you're left with heavy molecular weight stuff and medium molecular weight stuff. Eventually, it goes down. But it's still at that point on top of the water. If you get very high winds, that stuff's blown into the beaches pretty quickly and can be a real problem for the wetlands, for the salt marshes, and for the beaches. But part of it goes goes down naturally into the sea. And then, of course, if you use certain dispersants on it, those go down as well. Um, now, these materials, you know, the, the oil itself is made up of many, many, many compounds. It's not one or two or three compounds. Uh, and some of these are, you know, they're really toxic. And, of course, once they're there, the organisms are, are picking them up. And, and we've seen, even on the oil platforms themselves, the mortality of organisms that have settled on there, the barnacles and critters like that, crabs and so forth, fish that have, have died from it. But those, those are indicators. It's not just, oh, we've lost a barnacle, don't worry about it. It's if you've lost a barnacle... You've lost other things, too. It's, it's an indicator that there, there's a toxin in the environment and that we're losing crustaceans, shrimp are crustaceans, uh, and that we're losing other organisms. Um, we've seen uh, the loss of oyster beds here, which are the kind of a mainstay of uh, seafood production, and certainly in Louisiana. So th- there's certainly been effects which we've seen. And then, of course, you had mentioned human health effects, you know, I have colleagues that I work with uh, that were were told uh, that uh, after you know a certain period of time after the spill had been capped, that it was uh, okay to to dive in these areas. It was clear, uh, and and so they did. Now, and now this is a specific example, but I mean, uh, and these colleagues now have uh, unfortunately uh, contamination in their in their blood. Now, and that doesn't that doesn't go away easily, and it and the effects are known for such exposure. People who were shrimping and who were oyster people, uh, because they couldn't work anymore, because fisheries were shut down, were, were hired by, by BP and, uh, to, to help control the spill and to help uh, recover and to, uh, to mitigate the effects and, and working on open boats instead of going out on their own shrimp boats and so forth. They had exposure as well, but unfortunately we're not wearing hazmat suits, hazardous material suits. 
uh, and are suffering now the ill effects of of that exposure in some cases severe so there's yeah sure there are continuing effects and um, it's not a pretty picture and it's and it's not over I mean it's nice it would be nice to think that it's over I would love to think that it's over <laughs> um, but uh, I don't think that's the case at the moment I'm going to return to you, Dr. Samarco, but I'm going to turn as a reference point to Dr. Brian O'Leary in Ecuador. I think most importantly, Dr. Samarco raises the issue that is pivotal in my mind, wrong or right, of the water column and the damage that has been created there as well as to the base soil system. How has that occurred in the Andes with the drilling operations there? This must be one of the greatest long-term hazards to people in these regions. Absolutely. In Ecuador, it's actually in the Amazon um, where, where the uh, oil can be found. And in the 1970s, uh, Chevron, actually then it was Texaco, came in and they uh, drilled oil and then they disposed of the oil and the oil products improperly and it got into the uh, the water supply, got into the soil, it got into the uh, Amazon River tributary system itself um, and the total amount of toxic waste was actually greater than the cumulative amount that was spilled in the BP oil spill. Now this was all about 30 years ago and since then there have been thousands of deaths uh, that could be attributable to the, um, the, the toxic uh, uh, disposal, uh, improper disposal of, of the oil products, which caused um, the local communities to come together and uh, create a class action suit that was greater than any in the history of any environmental conflict. And it, in fact, uh, it was recently settled, the suit, um, it was judged, uh, the judgment was that Texaco or Chevron has to pay up $8 billion to begin to uh, clean up the, the mess. And so it, we here in Ecuador are very, very familiar with these problems. And it, it's, I think, symbolic of the fact that especially nowadays, the oil companies are going in and drilling more and more and more uh, sensitive, environmentally sensitive areas. Uh, here in the Amazon, this is the uh, the most biodiverse and um, uh, also with, with indigenous people that have been voluntarily isolated. Uh, it's, it's probably the last vast standing rainforest on earth. But there's also under the ground approximately a trillion dollars worth of oil, which is very tempting to go in and drill but um, most of, of the region, which does have oil on the ground, is now perilously being leased out for oil drilling. So the conflicts are, are everywhere. It's, it's an enormous problem. And um, yes, the bioremediation is possible. It hasn't been seriously considered by the powers that be, but it needs to, we need to get into that uh, to clean up the mess that we now have and to be able to prevent having future messes. And the bottom line of that is to create clean energy sources and get, get off of our addiction to oil. 
Uh, the bioremediation, by the way, there are wonderful uh, approaches to that question. I'd like to hear more. And also there are uh, very innovative uh, approaches that have been barely attempted, which involve the, the uh, imposition of the frequencies of sound and radio waves, uh, which is being headed up by my colleague, uh, Dr. John Hutchison from Canada. So there are many, many promising approaches. We're just going to have to get going on them so that we can minimize the loss of life and disease. Dr. Samarco, could I just ask you to respond to Dr. O'Leary in terms of the technology that he raises? Uh, sure, and, uh, uh, and I agree. I, I understand the similarities between the, the situation that we have here and the situation that is there, and I also agree with him on the issue that he's raised about being on the carbon pipeline uh, petroleum carbon pipeline, and I and I don't mean to say that that uh, you know I, it is the way that it's evolved over the years. It is what we have. Uh, we couldn't stop it tomorrow if we tried, uh, but we can't stop it over time. We can change over time. We're not doing it fast enough, obviously. But I, I just wanted to mention that's a really important point that he's he's raised regarding the the technologies that is the the remediation techniques which have been developed over the past 30 years or so, because the technique that was used offshore here is older than that. There are some really neat, uh, some really neat technologies around. Uh, one of them is, well, one of them, we are really lucky here in the Gulf of Mexico. We have bacteria which occur in the water column and in the salt marshes. They occur naturally, which are uh, petroleum hydrocarbon metabolizing bacteria. And the reason that they're there is they've evolved over you know hundreds of millions of years uh, as the Gulf of Mexico and neighboring environs have been seeping oil and gas into the water naturally. You know, these small seeps. It's, we're not talking big inputs, uh, but it's there. And bacteria are pretty good at, at uh, utilizing what's around them for food. And this is what's happened. They've evolved in such a way that they can do that. So it happens naturally. Of course, you have a spill like this, and the you know, how much grass can you feed a kangaroo? Uh, you know, you, you just, it's impossible for them to deal with, you know, 200 to 300 million gallons of oil. Uh, they just can't eat it that fast. Some of the bioremediation techniques involve these types of bacteria which have been cultured uh, and the release of them. Uh, and they're dependent upon uh, the oil being there. They, and the funny thing is that they don't necessarily proliferate they kick up their metabolism and they switch over their metabolism when, when these hydrocarbons are present to eat this stuff up. And I think it's uh, sevenfold their normal metabolic rate. So that's good. Uh, there have been some that have been cultured from the tar pits in California, actually, and those are available commercially. There's one really neat product um, which takes these bacteria, and I, th and I thought this was just novel, just fantastic. It takes these bacteria and it isolates the enzymes from the bacteria, which are responsible for chewing up the hydrocarbons and metabolizing them. And that is what's released into the water. And that's what does the job. And therefore, nothing living is released. It simply goes in, eats this material up, turns it into water and carbon dioxide, and, uh, and then it is eaten up just as the... Uh, the rest of the materials. So uh, 
those are three. Another one is non-toxic uh, type pad. It's the same same sort of material that's used in chromatography columns, which are used in chemistry um, to separate organic molecules. And uh, this thing, I call it petroleum hydrocarbon flypaper. Uh, you put it in the vicinity of, of oil or any petroleum hydrocarbon, and the stuff just sticks to it and it won't give it up. Um, and uh, experimented with this a, a bit, and it's pretty highly uh, highly effective stuff. Very, very light. You could hold a wad of it on a, with one finger, uh, and yet it will absorb uh, many, many times its own weight in, in oil. So there, and these are just three or four of them. There, so there are other cases where there are bacteria which have been placed on a cotton, a type of cotton background. Uh, it's almost like a fluff, which is released into the environment, which can be used in the water. So there's lots of things around, and they, they've, uh, some of them have been vetted with the U.S. EPA. Uh, some of them are in line uh, to be tested. But I think that in terms of the way I have, you know, for, with what I've seen, through this crisis, uh, I, I think that the, there could have been more done for review on the part of the federal government and quick action to utilize some of these other materials in the mitigation. I think uh, I was disappointed that there was a focus on one dispersant, and that was Corexit, and others, even though uh, they were already approved by government and had already been used in, in other areas by the government and by the military in the U.S. and overseas, and uh, tried and true, they were still not used. And this, to me, well, it raised a lot of questions for me, and uh, also uh, I was just disappointed. I, I, I felt that there was more here than met the eye. Dr. Brian O'Leary, any thoughts or response on that statement made by Dr. Samaka? Well, yes, uh, the, I think it's, it's very clear that the powers that be, whether it be BP or the U.S. government, are once again falling abysmally short of, of doing what, what really needs to be done. And there are just so many promising innovations out there that can remediate the problem, uh, or at least partially remediate it, and many, many uh, technologies and innovations which uh, could provide us a clean energy all of these things are waiting in the wings for their opportunity, but they've been suppressed. They've been suppressed by just a terribly uh, entrenched point of view of optimizing profits. It's, it's uh, the money game that's being played, and obviously the oil companies are, are about taking the lead in bringing in huge record profits. And so that, uh, that situation, the, the money game that's being played is preventing us from doing the things we really need to do. So I, I believe there needs to be a public outcry, there needs to be intelligent science applied to, to the uh, overall situation, whether it be in the Gulf or in the Amazon jungle or in the Arctic. As the oil companies go deeper and deeper in offshore situations and as they go into more sensitive areas environmentally, uh, the issue can only be exacerbated by the lack of, of any foresight or intelligence. Dr. Samako, there are surely great fears or thoughts of abandonment now in the Gulf of Mexico, and I know that Scott Porter is just one of the many thousands of people who have been stricken by illness. 
Is it not a great concern in academia or in your work that institutions are providing data that is quite possibly incorrect or not developed by neutral sources? Perhaps uh, universities that are funded by BP or other participants in this crisis on the other side of the fence, as it were. Are these concerns that you have now that this suppression that Dr. O'Leary talks about really is going to be a major problem going into the future? I think there, that's a multifaceted question. There's a number of levels uh, at, at which the, this issue is operating. So we'll, we'll start at the at the beginning. There are a number of different scientists that are working around the Gulf, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, even up in Maine and uh, Maryland and so forth, people who come down to the Gulf and work. New York, upstate New York, Cornell, as a matter of fact, is one, who have been taking samples and have been studying effects of this spill, particularly in terms of contamination on, on organisms, on organic plants and plants and animals, and also uh, water quality. Since well, probably a month into this spill, uh, at LUMCON, Louisiana University's Marine Consortium, where I work, you know, we are a bit of a port for research vessels. We have research vessels, and people come down and charter them, and we have an awful lot of groups come down and collect data. I've been working with a number of people from around the Gulf to look, you know, say, hey, you know, what have we got here? What do these data look like? How do they describe What's going on? Is there something we should be concerned about? Are these above acceptable levels, the contamination, and so forth? So there's, there's independent data, that which, is, which is good, because people don't really, they don't even know what the others are collecting until the data come in. There's, and all you can do really is compare them once you, once you get them. So they, they are truly independent. And also the scientists don't really have a stake in the game. Uh, they, they have nothing to lose and nothing to gain other than a publication out of it or something. Uh, and if they're lucky, maybe a grant somewhere down the line. But, but they, uh, most of the people that I have spoken with, my, my colleagues, are very, very interested in the health of the Gulf and in the health of the people of the Gulf. That, and, and, and we're trying to do a compilation of information at the moment uh, regarding this. Now, on the other, the other side of the coin, we have the federal institutions, uh, predominantly federal, not so much state, uh, or municipality that are also taking their own samples, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of people, great analyses, very expensive analyses, uh, GCMS on, on thousands and thousands and thousands of samples. But when you look at the data, uh, the data that, that I've seen anyway, there's something, something wrong with it when I compare it with other data. It looks benign, a little too benign for the situation. So there are a number of reasons why this could happen. I've racked my brain over this. So why would these numbers be so low, particularly comparing them with my own numbers? And at first I thought, well, you know, your first thought is the only way these numbers could be less, low is if someone's, uh, someone's uh, you know, dipping their hands in a cookie jar, someone's uh, playing with the numbers. And I thought, you know, with these agencies, it's actually... It's pretty improbable. It really is on that scale. Uh, these are these are these guys know what they're doing. They're you know they're no slouches. But why would the numbers be low? And then it dawned on me for water quality, 
what was going on. Why were my numbers the same as these numbers, their numbers? They shouldn't be the same because theirs were, mine were taken six months after the spill to the west of the spill site, and theirs were taken during the spill. Uh, mine were taken 40 miles away, and theirs were taken two miles downstream from the spill. Their numbers should have been off the charts. And then I realized that what they were using was, well, what, what would be the term? Using the, the, the wrong technique to measure what was going on. It's, not, it's an old standard technique, and it's fine, and it works for certain types of chemical oceanography and bio, biological oceanographic questions. But in this particular case, looking at oil, it's the wrong technique. You'll miss, you'll miss the oil. You'll miss the oil which has not dissolved in the water, which is most of the oil, uh, whereas we were using more of a continuous flow technique, which is we caught whatever was there. And I thought, well, that's what I think is the most probable explanation. I, don't, I just think it's unlikely that the data were manipulated. On the other hand, we have uh, data coming down on shrimp, for example, and we have a similar, is, similar issue, which is the data don't jibe. You've mentioned Dr. Subra. She has data which are pretty solid regarding contamination, and the numbers are striking. Uh, you know, I've had to think twice before going into a restaurant ordering either a hamburger or some shrimp. And I love shrimp, but, you know, the numbers are the numbers, and then you see com- what's coming out from the agencies, and you go, well, wait a minute, it just doesn't jive. And again, is it that the numbers have been manipulated, or is it that or somebody made a mistake, or is it that, uh, indeed, it's just a technique? And again, the, uh, it's probably the technique, an old, staid technique, which has used, been used for 30, 40 years for getting these numbers, which is fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it, except it may not necessarily be appropriate for this particular case, because, uh, let's see, you're in, I think you're in possibly in Florida, but here in Louisiana, when people eat shrimp, they take the entire shrimp and they boil them. They put everything in. They put the chitin in, they put the head in, they put all the fat in that's in the thing, and that's the material that will grab the oil. It even dissolve stuff in the water column. It's just a zip. It's the old flypaper technique. There are so many people ill, and of course we've had some very uh, sad programs recently and at the same time managed to gain help and support for these people but it's clear that the level of the problem is far higher than anybody could ever imagine. Is there not a feeling in the scientific establishment in the uh, social makeup in that area that BP has abandoned this issue, moved on to other areas in the world and essentially left what could be considered as a human disaster? I would say there may be a feeling of that, but I'm not sure that there's a place where a corporation could run to with this, you know, leaving this type of problem behind. Because, you know, we are, when I say we, I mean the, the United States is just, again, it's the way it is, is a litigious society. And uh, that whole mechanism is going to kick in. In fact, it's already kicked in. So whether they physically leave the region or not, I think that if, if there is a something to be answered for, which there most likely is, uh, I think they're going to have to answer for it. And I think it's, that's just the way it is. But in terms of a feeling of abandonment, probably, probably there is. Uh, maybe, maybe it's because of the hundreds of thousands of, of claims that have been made that they're trying to deal with. I don't know. 
Um, but I know that uh, their home base of field operations was right next door to where I work. And uh, on a certain date, they just pulled up stakes and were gone. They claimed that the spill was gone. It's under control. Everything's fine. And, you know, clearly it's it's not. Maybe from that particular perspective it is. But you know, we're certainly not looking at the end of a, this major, of this crisis. Let me turn to Pat O'Brien. Do you have any input at this stage or news to provide? Well, I do, David. And, and you know, one of the things that we have learned is that BP is charged on the oil that's on the surface, not oil that is underneath the surface. That's what the correction did. It actually took it under the surface. But there was some news that came out Tuesday a meeting that was held in Baton Rouge, and this is a story, I'll just take it from uh, one of our sources that came out. Tired of waiting on BP for help, Governor Bobby Jindal announced Tuesday morning that the state would invest $12 million in emergency funding for coastal restoration and oyster bed development. BP continues to promise financial aid after last April's Gulf oil rig explosion that created what has been called the worst environmental disaster in U.S. history. But he said no help has been forthcoming. We are forced to take coastal protection into our own hands, said Jindal. The state committed funds that will allow for an expedited process to get projects underway this spring, he said. The morning news conference, Jindal said money would be taken from special oyster development and coastal funds. He said the diversion of cash would not hinder other projects. The funds will be replenished when BP pays up, and if it doesn't, a claim can be filed through the National Oil Pollution Fund. This is work that will be eligible to be reimbursed, he said. The governor said the funds will be distributed as follows. $2 million to reestablish oyster beds in public seed grounds. The money comes from the oyster seed ground development account. $5 million for shoreline stabilization involving three miles of engineered shoreline reefs. The reefs serve to break waves and improve water quality. The Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority and Emergency Reserve account is tapped. Five million to reestablish re vegetation and sand fencing for about 30 miles of oil-impacted shoreline. Dollars will come from the Coastal Impact Assistance Program. Jindal and the Coastal Parish Presidents said that work needs to get underway immediately because of continuing damage from the oil spill effects. We are facing a situation where BP has stalled in their responsibility as a responsible party, said St. Bernard Parish President Craig Tafaro. We need to reverse the damage. Tafaro called the $12 million a start towards comprehensive restoration effort that is needed. Plaquemine Parish President Billy Nungesser, who has been on our air, said BP has shown no sense of urgency to stop the intrusion of oil on the shoreline. He also said it is leading to rapidly increasing coastal erosion. We have to take care of ourselves, said Jefferson Parish President 
John Young, who has also been on the David Gibbons program. Mike Volizhin, uh, chairman of the Louisiana Oyster Task Force, said the $2 million toward oyster bed reestablishment will help Louisiana oyster community recover. Two or three years from now, Volition said, we'll be back where we were pre-spill. State Wildlife and Fisheries Secretary Robert Barms challenged BP to live up to the promise the company makes as it invests millions in expensive advertising campaigns. He said BP keeps saying, we'll be here for the long haul. We are going to make it right. Said Barham, just do what you said you would do in the commercials. Let me turn to Dr. Brian O'Leary. What similarities are you seeing in Ecuador that we should take heed of in bringing them back to the table to reevaluate this situation? Well, David, the oil companies have become so powerful, they do just about anything they'd like to do. Uh, it's come to that. And that's only at the source, at the uh, end use, and the transport of it is is just as serious a problem, as well as the implications for climate change, air pollution, the acidification of the oceans. It's total disaster. If you look at the whole thing, whether it's in Ecuador or in the Gulf, if we keep going the way we're going, we're just going to have more disasters, more oil spills. We've got to get off our addiction to oil. And fortunately, there are answers. Um, there are answers such as being able to run your, your water, uh, your car on water, or being able to um, develop energy sources that have been suppressed, that are, are total breakthroughs, that have been totally unsupported and actually suppressed, uh, violently suppressed at, at times because of the huge vested interests of the oil companies. So we need to now become educated about the possibilities and to take over energy policy from those who have uh, so grievously violated our, our rights and our uh, environment. Um, it, it's time now to awaken and to change the whole system and do it over the next few years. Dr. Samarco, your thoughts and response to Dr. Brian O'Leary and probably more important in your work, some inspiration for those people of which I'm sure there are friends of yours who are currently ill with complaints that are directly connected to this issue. Well, firstly, uh, I agree with uh, Dr. O'Leary that, you know, we, we, we are responsible for the future. We can't. Uh, there's a, uh, an Amer a Native American phrase. Uh, we do not. We do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children, and that's that pretty much sums up where we're at. He's correct about uh, carbon as a source of energy, uh, using the oil industry for for our primary source of energy. And uh, there's so many other uh, renewable and alternate sources available that need to be developed, and, and they are under development, but they, they need to be used more and more with time. There is no way out. That has to happen. And it will happen, but it needs to happen sooner rather than later. Regarding contamination of individuals uh, who have worked around the Gulf or simply gone to the beach or simply have been sitting at home and been affected by the spill, it's, I think it is the saddest part of, of this. I think the data are... I, the 
data are not in. They're not all in on this yet, and I, I think they will be coming in, and they will be even sadder. Uh, there, there are detoxification techniques, at least to the best of my knowledge, available, and uh, any, anybody that has this, I'd recommend that they see a doctor, and a doctor who's aware of how to treat these types of problems or a hospital that's available and knows how to treat the problems uh, so they can get themselves out of the road to recovery. I'm hoping that we will see the end of this. I don't think it's going to be in the near term. I don't think it's going to be tomorrow. But I think with, with getting smart and treating this in a wise fashion, we can, uh, we can see the end of it within a reasonable period of time. But we can't turn our backs on it. Dr. Paul Samarco, Patrick O'Brien, and Dr. Brian O'Leary, I do thank you for joining me today on In Discussion. Thank you for, thank you, uh, for having me. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you gained valuable information from this program. You can gain information on any program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com.